We're in uh, 1 Peter. We're up to 1 Peter 2, 9 to 12. Just want to read the verse, two verses before it. So I'll read from verse 7, just to give us a bit of context. This is by far probably the biggest chunk that I've preached and have no idea how I ended up breaking it up in such a big section. But that's what we have. So I'm going to preach what is there. And by God's grace, we will grow and and be challenged and encouraged by it. Uh, 1 1 Peter 2, 7 to 12. So the honour is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and the stone of stumbling stumbling a rock of offence. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation and a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honourable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask the Lord for his guidance as we turn to his word. Holy Father, I am humbled just by reading this word that we are, as one people, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, yours, Lord. We are yours. Lord, I pray that as we explore this scripture, as we unpack it, would your Holy Spirit give us great understanding and great desire for your church? Would we examine our history, our recent history in Australia? Would we correct where areas need correcting? Would you draw light on areas that are in darkness? And Father, would we grow to be a people that is magnifying the Lord Jesus Christ in front of those who are outside your church? By our actions, by our proclamation, Lord, would we reflect and magnify you and your gospel so that others will glorify you with us on the day of visitation? the day of glory. When you were glorified by us and you glorify your church, what an incredible day it will be. With that before us, and that as our longing and eager expectation, would we abstain from the things of the flesh? And would we live as a people for your own possession? We pray this for your exaltation. In Jesus' name, amen. The church, the church, the bride of Christ, the people of God, Jesus' body, 
What value do you give it? What commitment to you do you have to it? The motto of the 16th century Reformation was, out of darkness, light. At many times throughout history, the church has fallen into dark places. Probably one of the darkest being uh, in that 16th century time period. The question we may need to ask today is, does the Australian church need light in some of its dark places? Have we fallen into darkness and need a reformation of our own to expose some of that darkness? We think of the Catholic gospel, the Roman Catholic gospel, and the need for Luther to shine the light of the true gospel upon it. And when the light of the true gospel comes upon things in darkness, they rally and hate it and despise the person proclaiming it, or the people. Is the church in need of this light to expose the shallow Christian worship of our age? The Christian church has boiled down Christianity to an hour and a half service a week. If we were to track back in time of church history, history, we would find that the Lord's day was the Lord's day. A lot more time was spent together as the body of Christ being equipped and encouraged and challenged to go back out into the world and live as Christians six days of the week. And on the seventh, once again, we gather for worship and encouragement and correction, confession, and go back out again for six days of the week. Is there a need for the light of the scriptures to shine upon the shallow darkness of our Christian worship in Australia? When someone brings the word of God to shine on our worship today and suggests things that communion is exclusive for only baptized repentant believers or maybe children should actually stay in church, People defend their traditions and hate the light of the scriptures. I've always wanted my children to play AFL and do nippers. I recently found out that they're both on Sunday. So guess what? They're not doing either of them. I've told a few people this and they've responded, well, I guess because you're a pastor, they really can't. There's two things wrong with this response. Firstly, it's not because I'm a pastor, it's because I'm a Christian. Secondly, it's not because they can't, it's because I value the church and its eternal worth more than their temporal success at sport. It's not because they can't. It's because I'm weighing up what I would rather than value. I would rather than value the church than success in this life. I'd rather them grab an imperishable glory rather than a perishable wreath, as Paul puts it. It's not because they can't. It's because of the value of the church. So what value does the light of Scripture put on the church? And there is no greater probably passage to come to than to see here as Peter compels the church to see the value that they have. So picking up in verse 9, but you, you are a chosen race, 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. We start this section in the middle of a contrast being made. The last group of people in verse 8 is said that they stumble over the rock of offense. And they stumble because they were destined to disobey the word. As Cody so clearly put last week, Jesus is either your cornerstone in which all other areas your life is built from and measured by, or he is a stone you stumble over and offended by. The last group of people were destined to stumble over him and disobey his word. But you, you church, are chosen are chosen to be a group of people that will reflect and replace the people of the Old Testament, Israel. A chosen race. The LSB translation translates this, family. A chosen family. To say you are of the same bloodline, you were once of the bloodline of Adam, which was to death because of sin, now you're of the blood of Christ. And it is no accident. And it was not your doing, but God's doing. See, every one of these titles or identities that God, that Peter gives the church, has implications for how the church will function. To say that you are a chosen race or a chosen family is not a nice cliche like businesses put up. Your gym or a CrossFit gym is not your family as they claim to be. But the church is and should function as a family, meaning we are loyal to them and not divided over biological race or biological family. A chosen family, not just a nice cliche, not just what we put on a banner to draw people in, And it shouldn't be that people come in and then feel like it's false advertisement. Chosen family. What we see throughout all this this section, and the reason I find it such a large amount of Scripture here to teach on is because the references to the Old Testament are many. We can see up to five, seven, seven different references in just this section of Scripture alone. One of the obvious ones we see in Exodus 19.20 for these next two titles that, God, uh, that Peter gives the church. Exodus 20, 19.20 uh, says, And you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. In verse 5 of the same chapter, chapter 2, uh, of 1 Peter chapter 2, we see Peter call the church a holy priesthood, meaning that they are washed in the blood of Christ. They come directly to him and not through a priest, because you have been made holy through Christ's death and resurrection. You no longer need a priest to mediate between you and God, for Christ is the, the great high priest who gave up his blood. Now, It states that we are a royal priesthood. We're a holy priesthood because we've been made holy. We are now a royal priesthood, meaning we serve in the presence of the king. If we are a royal priesthood, we are the reserved priesthood. 
We're not just ordinary priests, but we serve before the king. We serve before the king of kings. So when we come to gather here on a Sunday, we gather before the throne of God. But also, when you go home and shut the door, whatever you do, you do before the throne of God. We are a royal priesthood. Meaning when you sin, you don't need to come to me or anyone else, although it's helpful to confess sin, but your forgiveness comes through Christ's blood and Christ alone. Peter has used the word holy many times up to this point. He wants the church to understand the weight of their holiness, that they are set apart, cut off from the world, to look so different, so out of place. And here, he uses it in, re- in reference to being a nation. Emphasizing again that we are not like the rest of the world. Nor do we have allegiances to nations, but to the kingdom of God alone. We have our own culture, our own law, it's the law of God, and our own way of life. And we are to be different to the rest of the world. As a holy nation... We take in all other nations. As a holy nation, there is no separation between us and another race, but we are one in Christ. And as a holy nation, we bring our natural cultures and we call them to submit to the Word of God. There's some things that need redeeming, like music. There's some things that need rejecting, like maybe our culture's way of dressing. There's some things that can... We can just accept and take as they are. But we ourselves as a holy nation have a culture that is set apart and should not be infused or take reference from the culture of our time. And we as a church are a people for God's own possession. The church is God's. From the beginning, God would, want, God would desire for himself a people for his own possession. Creating Adam and Eve and placing them in a garden, we see that he had a man and a woman and they were going to be fruitful and multiply and push the garden out into the world, God's dwelling place. But sin enters in. Does God's plan change? Did God unexpectedly not know that Adam was going to sin? No, the fall was ordained by God and for his purpose. He knew the end from the beginning. So he continues to claim for himself a people. Enoch, Noah and his sons, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Israel. And Israel is the people of God who are called a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And finally, through his church, He grabs a people from every tongue and every nation into the Gentile world through His his Messiah, in which He says the new covenant is that the law of God will be written upon their hearts. The people of God's own possession is that we we are the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham. It was said of Abraham in chapter 12 of Genesis, I'll bless those who bless you, and in him who dishonors you, I'll curse. 
And in, and in you, all the families of earth shall be blessed. All the families on earth shall be blessed. When did that happen? When the seed of Abraham, Christ, conquered death. Gave up, sorry, gave up his life, conquered death, and brought in the new covenant. All families are blessed through Christ. In, in Genesis, uh, in Genesis uh, later in Genesis, we see Abram's name is changed to Abraham, and he says, For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Abraham becomes the father of many nations. Of course, that meaning uh, literally when we see all the sons that Abram have, uh, Abraham has, has after Isaac, but also through the church. The church will gather peoples from all different places and they'll become one holy nation, a people for God's own possession. So if we weigh this up, but you, O church, are a chosen family or a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. What value does that give the church? How does that change the message that we have received from our culture of our time about the church? Is it worth more than an hour and a half service? It sounds to me like what, Paul, what Peter is trying to say is this is your whole life. Your whole identity is referenced by your position before God. You're either stumbling over the rock of offense or you're building your life upon it. And every angle that comes off the cornerstone, you're establishing your, your life upon. And if you're establishing your life upon this cornerstone, you will be a chosen family, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, which just by reference you can't do on your own because they're all a collective. Just the weight of that identity does not fit with the value that the Australian church has put upon, upon the church. Whether we see it as a building, whether we see it as a service, there's shallow references to what the scriptures call us to live out. What would it be like to have this upon our mind, this phrasing upon our mind as we think of the church. As we wake up every Lord's Day morning, Sunday morning, with the joy that we get to be with saints. The joy that we get to take refuge with our chosen family. The joy that we get to gather as a priesthood that reminds one another we need no mediator that is man. Because we have a better mediator who is Christ, that calls each other, that we are a holy nation to be set apart from the world, to put away the Australian culture and to put on the kingdom of God and to remind one another, hey, brother, sister, you are belonging to God today. God owns you. You're his possession. The richness of that community cannot be overstated. And Peter gives us a point that follows this very identity that we have a purpose 
that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. A chosen family, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession are to be heard because they have been transformed. They are to be seen because they once lived in darkness. We once lived in darkness, like the rest of the world, we now live in the light. And we know the references to the light in Scripture. A city on a hill that cannot be hidden. We don't light a lamp and put it under something or put it into the corner. It's to shine bright. John 3.19 says, and this is the judgment, the light has come into the world, but people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. This is a challenging scripture for us. When the scriptures shine on your life, do you cower away from it? Do you hate it, despise it? When people come in and just question, are we doing church right? Could we have a better commitment to the gathering of the saints? Could we love the church more? Do we hate that message? There's a concern that maybe darkness has consumed us. Because it's the people of the world that love darkness. When the light shines upon us, we love the gospel. We love the scriptures. We love that exposes our evil deeds and pushes us out of darkness and into light. It illuminates the shadows. Colossians 1.13 says, He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. Peter is setting up in this passage a lot of practical applications to follow. Submission to authorities, whether it be secular authorities, the, uh, the governors, our work, submission in the household, husband and wives, how they should function, submission in the church to elders and, of course, Christ. Speaking about light and darkness, <laughs> very weird. So Peter is setting up this image that we have been transferred from the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of His beloved Son. And since we have been brought into the kingdom of His beloved Son, we will proclaim the marvellous light that has shone into our lives and transformed it. We live in the marvellous light, which means we live differently to the world. Just as we are a holy nation and live differently to the other nations, so we live differently because we live in the light. It's obvious that our way of life should look different to those in darkness. The way we dress should look different. The way we work and submit to our bosses should look different. The way we submit and function under the government should look different. The way our marriages function, the way our singleness functions, the way we raise our children should look different. We've been transferred. We're not like the rest of the world. We're a holy nation, we're a royal priesthood, and we've also been transferred out of the darkness that they are in, and we're placed in the kingdom of the beloved Son, which dramatically means our life is different. Peter states it like this in verse 10. Once you were not a people, 
but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That statement is to say that change has happened. You have not been transferred just so that you're busy on Sunday morning. You've not been transferred just so that you are busy at certain times during the week going to Bible studies. You have been transferred to a completely different way of life. Once it was just you and selfishness and the worship of your idols. Now you are a people, God's people. Once you were under the condemnation of your sin, now you have received mercy and it has passed from you to Christ. The weight of this passage would have been felt among the Israelite Christians, the Jewish Christians. He's quoting from Hosea, and if you know the story of Hosea, he is a man, a prophet, who is called by God to take a prostitute as a wife, as a symbol as a reference to what God has done with Israel. And each of his children get named very specific names. In 1 verse 6 of Hosea, it says, She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said, Call her name no mercy, for I will have no mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them, uh, to forgive them at all. And then later, in Hosea 2, 23, says this, And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I'll say to not my people, the name of his other child, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. So Isaiah's life became this image towards Israel that they had been cut off from God. That they had no mercy. And they were not his people because of their disobedience. But God, through his graciousness and his patience, says, I will say to no mercy you will have my mercy. And I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people. And we will say, you are my God. And if we say, you are my God, your life is different. Your life has transferred. Your life is not the same with a few extra activities And I think this is the point where we need to remember that the mission of God is more than just evangelism. It's not less than evangelism. Evangelism is so important. The proclamation of the gospel is important. We are to proclaim that we have been taken from darkness and into the marvelous light. That is true. But we are also to be seen for it. We are to be clearly seen. And the Australian church has gone into refuge bunker mode where we're hiding away and are not seen. We need to be seen, outwardly visible to the world that we are a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people of God. And Paul, Paul, Peter, Paul wrote more, I guess. Peter then tenderly like an old father and he was probably pretty aged at this point says beloved beloved 
I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh that wage war against your soul. The word beloved cannot be overstated. His tone has changed. He's gently coming to the church. He has reminded them of who they are. He has challenged them to live a holy life. And now he is gently challenging them again to live differently. Beloved. Some translations translate this friends. If it is, cross it out and write beloved because the weight of beloved is, is, is more tender, more personal than just friends. It's the same word that is referenced to Christ, the kingdom of his beloved son. We have been transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. Now Peter is saying, you church are my beloved. You are the beloved of the Lord. And I want you to be aware That although you are sojourners and exiles, you need to remember that you are God's chosen family, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a beloved people for his own possession. Yet while you are in this world, you are sojourners and exiles. While you're in this world, you have not entered into the rest. While you're in this world, you are going to be around the people of darkness. And while you're in this world, you are still going to have to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Or another word, the lusts of the flesh. While we are sojourners and exiles, we are charged to live differently and to abstain from the things that wage war in our life. And he doesn't sugarcoat it. He's a father coming to, or a grandfather coming to children tenderly and saying, beloved, but he's serious. It wages war against you. Every day, you are at war. You are at war of what will occupy your mind. Will you cause it to submit to Christ or will you follow after the lusts of your flesh? Knowing that what goes on in your mind will at some point produce fruit in your life. Peter or Paul or any of the other New Testament writers make it so clear that we have the ability and power and I've been over this before and I want to Press it again from another scripture, the ability to abstain from our fleshly desires, our passions of our flesh. Let's look at another writing from Paul, Galatians 5. Galatians 5.19 says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So Paul, with this great list, is saying that if you continue in those things, the evidence will be clear that you are not a part of the kingdom of God, you're actually still in darkness, and you will not inherit it. So the truth is that when God says he will glorify us, before he glorifies us, he will continue to sanctify us. It does not mean we will be perfect one day before we enter into glory. It does mean we will be changing along the way. 
if we go to war against our flesh. There are works here to be done. There are works here to be done. Because Galatians 6 goes on very clearly straight after this to say in verse 7, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh, he will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will, sow, will, will from the Spirit reap eternal life. What you allow into your mind will reap a harvest. If we just use some of this extensive list of what these passions of the flesh are, as examples, if we sow sexual immorality into our mind, we will reap sexual immorality. We may sow just small hints of sexual immorality, a lust here or there, a comparison between this person and our spouse, or a lingering look on the streets. But if we sow, we will reap. Maybe it's rivalry. We sow the thoughts of, I'm doing better than that person. I'm more hospitable than them. We will reap from this rivalry. Or division. This person said this. That person thinks this. You will reap corruption. But if we sow according to the Spirit, I love Psalm 119. I have stored up your word in my heart. I have treasured up your law in my heart so that I will not sin against you. We need to have the word of God ready in our minds to replace the seed of the flesh. To replace rivalry and sexual morality and idolatry. So that what we reap comes from the Spirit and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word and eternal life. We are a holy nation, set apart from the world. But Peter says, Beloved, be aware you're at war. Be aware that you are at war. And what you are sowing today may in five years' time reap corruption. Ten years' time reap corruption. So church, what are we sowing today? Because he goes on to say, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honourable. Gentiles meaning outsiders. He's given us the identity as Israel, chosen race, a royal priesthood. We are the new Israel. So now everyone outside of us are Gentiles, not the people of God. And he uses this word honourable, which Paul uses also, and it means to magnify. To keep your conduct among the outsiders, Gentiles, honourable, or to magnify. To draw Christ closer. To make close what is far away. To live a life that is praiseworthy. But notice that if we live a life that is honourable to God, magnifying to God, 
They will speak against you as evildoers. This world will speak against us as evildoers when we live the way God wants us to live. Why? Because they're in darkness. They don't know what is good. They don't know what is light. They don't know the law of God. Therefore, when we live according to the law of God, they will say you are evil. And I've used this as an example before, but I think it's a helpful example. When Israel Folau stood up and stood upon the word of God, the church cowered away from him and made sure that he was stepped aside from them. I'm not a Christian like him. When the Manly players recently said they wouldn't wear the pride jumper, most churches said, I'm not like that. Well, I'm going to say I am. And church, we should all say that we are. If we're going to live a life that is magnifying to God, the world will think we are evil, but on the day of visitation, they will glorify God because they see our deeds. On the day of Christ, they will realize and they will bow their knee before God because of His sheer glory and holiness. And maybe, maybe some of them, as Peter will go on to say later, will ask us for the reason for our hope. Because we stand upon the truth of God's Word. I'm telling you, if you go around and poke people's idols in their eye, they will hate you and call you evil for it. But the truth is, in doing so, you are magnifying Jesus. You are bringing what's far away close and making Him real to these people here. This world today needs to see the true church, the church, that is a, the church that is a chosen family, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people that are possessed and owned by God. That's what Australia needs to see. A church that stands together and rallies around one another. When we stand up for the law of God, the righteous law of God, we should rally. And say, we're together on this. He is not alone. They are not alone. And through our proclamation of word and our actions in deed, they will glorify God. Whether willingly in this life or by force on judgment day. Let's pray. Holy Father, I thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, your beloved Son, who through his death and resurrection brought in near your kingdom. I thank you that you've transferred us from darkness into that kingdom, into marvelous light. May we proclaim his excellencies in word and deed. May we stand as one people united upon your word and your law of righteousness.
May there be some, Lord, who ask for a reason for the hope that we have. That see the difference in the community. That hear the gospel preached. And will repent and believe and glorify you. And Lord, we know that in the end every knee will bow and confess that Jesus is Lord. Every knee. There'll be no exception. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.